Well, if you haven't noticed, Christmas is almost upon us. I noticed a couple weeks ago when Nate started listening to Christmas music in the office. <laughs> Although it wasn't traditional Christmas music, it was elves singing about workers' rights and poor working conditions in the North Pole and the need to unionize. So apparently that's how Nate prepares for Christmas. <laughs> to each his own. Well, the Christmas season is, of course, a wonderful time, and it's a wonderful time whereby we celebrate the birth of Christ, the coming of our Savior, and rightly so. The birth of Jesus gives us a wonderful reason to celebrate and rejoice. And when we talk about the birth of Christ, we often refer to the incarnation. And if you're not familiar with that term, the incarnation refers to the act of God the Son, Jesus Christ, taking on human nature. Or another way of saying it, it's the act of being made flesh. The miraculous way Christ was conceived and the humble nature of his birth are essential to understanding the incarnation. Still, the incarnation has implications that go far beyond the birth of Jesus. While we give particular attention to the birth of Jesus at Christmas, the fact of the incarnation is good news for us year-round. Do you know why? Do you know can you answer that question? If someone were to ask you, why is the incarnation, why is the fact that Jesus took on human nature good news? Why does it matter? What would you say? Well, we are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Hebrews. And our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. What we have seen as, is that the book of Hebrews was originally a letter written to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century for whom following Jesus had become hard. They faced difficulty in challenge, in challenges in following Christ and remaining faithful to the gospel. And so the author of Hebrews, who's anonymous, wrote this letter with the heart of a pastor to try to exhort and encourage these Jewish Christians to hold fast to Jesus Christ, to hold fast to the gospel, to remain faithful and devoted to his church. In chapter one, the author began to exalt in the glory of Jesus. And what we see throughout the letter is that the exhortations to hold fast to Jesus are rooted in the person of Jesus, meaning Jesus is glorious. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is mighty to save. Therefore, cling to him. Remain faithful to him. Hold on. Endure. Persevere. Don't give up. Don't lose your confidence in him. In chapter 1, we saw how the author began to exalt in the glory of Jesus, speaking of his 
deity, the fact that he is God and always has been God, using wonderful, powerful, profound descriptions, incorporating numerous references to Old Testament scriptures which point forward to Christ. Well, in chapter 2, we see that he turns his attention to the incarnation, to the fact that Jesus took on human nature. And we are going to see the significance of this. We're going to see the beginning of the significance of this in our passage, but it will, begin, it will be developed and unpacked in the chapters ahead. So I hope that in the coming weeks and months, we will have a better sense, a better idea. It will become increasingly clear in our own minds why the fact of Christ's incarnation is good news for us. And I hope we will understand this clearly because understanding this clearly will bear much good fruit in our lives. So our passage is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. I'm going to read and I encourage you to follow along. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect." so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In verse 5, the author picked up the comparison with angels again. Lest the recipients of the letter think too highly of angels or of the revelation given through angels, we read that it was not to angels that the Lord has subjected the world to come. Throughout Hebrews, we are reminded of our future. As those who belong to the Lord, we are strangers and exiles on the earth who are 
looking forward to the day when we will go home to a better country, a heavenly one, a city that, has, that God has prepared for us. Brothers and sisters, do you have a sense of this? Do you have a sense that this world in its present form, even on our best days, is not our home? This is not our home. We are looking forward to going home where we will go to a country that is immeasurably better and greater than any country on the face of this earth. We are looking forward to that day when we will go home to a, a better country, a city prepared for us. We have a wonderful and glorious future with Christ and his kingdom. In this world to come, which we look forward to, is not ruled by angels. And to make this point, the author quotes Psalm chapter 8. In Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist beholds God's glory and power in creation and marvels that God, who has created all these wonderful things that we see, pays attention to mankind and gives dominion to mankind. In Psalm chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, we read, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Psalm 8 referred to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, where man is created in the image of God as the pinnacle of his creation. So in Genesis 1.26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man, male and female, in his image to exercise rule and dominion over the earth in his place. Man was created in God's image to rule the world for God. Unfortunately, that did not go very well. Why not? Because rather than ruling the world in obedience to God and for his glory, man rebelled against God through sin. All creation became distorted through sin and death entered the world. And we see in Hebrews 2.15, the author describes mankind as those who through the fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. So rather than ruling the earth and exercising dominion in the way that the Lord commanded us, we live in the fear of death and indeed we eventually die. And all creation is subjected to futility because of our sin. We don't see peace. We don't see order. We don't see harmony in unity. We don't see human flourishing in the world in the way that God intended. We see brokenness. We see conflict. We see war. We see disease. We see natural disasters. 
we see the ruinous effects of our sin and our failure to rule the world for God, his way. But the good news we see in Hebrews 2 is that the passage from Psalm 8 finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus, who is fully God, added to himself a human nature. Through the incarnation, God made Jesus, for a little while, lower than the angels. Yet, he has been crowned with glory and honor, and God has put everything in subjection under his feet. So Christ, who is our perfect human representative, rules and exercises dominion according to God's way. He is the one who rightly rules and exercises dominion and obedience to God. Well, then why is the world still broken? If Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and all things have been subjected to him, why do we still see so much brokenness and evil and suffering and pain and death? Well, we also need to remember the verse from Psalm 110 that was quoted at the end of Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13, the author quoted Psalm 110 verse 1, which says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The reason the author of Hebrews brought this up is because he was saying, listen, Christ fulfills what is written here in this psalm. God the Father said to God the Son, Jesus Christ, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool under your feet. He's saying this applies to Christ. But notice that the time of all of his enemies being made a footstool under his feet has not yet happened. It has not yet occurred. We still await that time. Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool under your feet. So Christ is indeed sitting at the right hand of the Father, but the day has not yet come whereby all of his enemies are a footstool under his feet. So on the one hand, what we read in Psalm 110 verse 1 has not yet happened. On the other hand, we see in Psalm 8 verse 8 that everything is subject to him. So there is a tension in the application of these texts. And the Christians who originally received the letter of Hebrews may have felt that tension acutely. Has Psalm 8 really been fulfilled in Jesus? Are all things really subject to him? If all things are subject to Jesus, then why is the church so weak? Why is the church so insignificant among the vast Roman Empire? Why do we seem to have so little influence? Why do the enemies of the church persecute us and get away with it? Why do we seem so few in number, have so little influence, have so little resources? How can you say that Christ, who is the head of the church, 
is ruling and all things have been subject to him. We're not experiencing that. That doesn't correspond to our life here and now as Christians living in the world. Well, in verses 8 and 9, the author seeks to address the perceived conflict between the passages and encourage the Christians. He said that it is true that nothing is outside of his control. That is true. But we do not yet see the full reality of that. As we observe the world around us, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Christ. And I think this is a tension that we feel as well. We worship Christ, the glorious one, the exalted one, the one to whom all things are subject. Yet we can look in the world and we can see evil. We can see suffering. We see brokenness. At times the church seems so weak. Are we even making a difference? Does anyone even notice? Why does Christ's church seem so weak when Christ is so powerful? We can feel this. So the author of Hebrews says, it's true that we don't presently see everything in subjection to him, but don't lose heart. Don't be mistaken. Don't be deceived. Here's what we do see. Jesus came to earth, and through his incarnation, he was made lower than the angels. He experienced humiliation. But his humiliation was only temporary. He has since been exalted and crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. When the author speaks of his exaltation, it's referring to the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. After he died on the cross, he was buried. But on the third day, he was raised. God raised Christ from the dead. God vindicated Christ and affirmed that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to make payment for the sins of his people. Christ was vindicated through his resurrection and he appeared to hundreds of people proving that he is alive. And then before his disciples, he ascended into heaven. And so he was visibly exalted before men, both through his resurrection and through his ascension. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. Tom Schreiner writes, the role ascribed to human beings in creation, which Psalm 8 reaffirms, has now been realized in Jesus Christ. He currently reigns at God's right hand, crowned with glory and honor. Certainly his reign has not come in its fullness. All his enemies are not yet subjected to him. Nevertheless, in the reign of Jesus, we see the destiny of the human race, the destiny of all of those who belong to Jesus. Death will not conquer. Jesus' rule over all and his exaltation take place because he suffered death. Death can only be conquered through death. The death deserved by human beings can only be undone by one who dies 
as a human being. By God's grace, Christ, because he took on human nature, tasted death for us. He tasted death to conquer death. And the proof that he conquered death is seen in his exaltation, his resurrection and ascension. He presently reigns at God's right hand and we will see all things subject to him in the world to come. And those who belong to him, those who have been saved by Christ, may seem weak at the time, may seem insignificant in this world in its present form, may suffer, but will rule with Christ in the world to come. That is the future that he has secured for us through his suffering, through his death. In verse 10, we read that the Lord saw fit to make Jesus, the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering in bringing us to glory. Of course, that doesn't mean that he was made perfect in a moral sense, as though he was morally imperfect and then God made him morally perfect. No, it's not referring to being made perfect in a moral sense. He has always been without sin. He has always been morally perfect. But in verse 10, when the author speaks of Jesus being perfected, he was likely drawing from Exodus and Leviticus and the idea of a priest becoming consecrated for his office and qualified for his priestly service. Jesus, who is our pioneer, our trailblazer, our leader, and the founder of our salvation, was qualified for his role and his service because of his suffering. The idea that he was perfected, consecrated, or qualified through suffering was probably one of the many reasons Christians were ridiculed and despised in the first century. As numerous scholars have noted, the association of the divine with suffering and perfection with suffering would have been shocking and incomprehensible in the Greco-Roman world. They would have been ridiculed, despised, mocked, made fun of. The challenge this would pose for Christians in the first century is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where the apostle Paul wrote, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Some people want signs, miraculous demonstrations of power. Others want brilliant and eloquent wisdom. No one wants a crucified Savior. It is folly. It is foolishness. It is ridiculous. It is not appealing. It does not appeal to human desires. No one wants to associate with this type of a Savior. But despite the difficulties that the Christians faced, the author of Hebrews didn't shy away from teaching on the suffering of Christ. As a matter of fact, he leaned in. He pressed in on teaching the sufferings of Christ. No, we're not going to back away from this. We're not going to shy away. We're not going to avoid this topic that is unpopular amongst the culture. 
No, we're going to lean in and talk about the sufferings of Christ. Because though the suffering of Christ may be despised amongst the world around us, it is actually glorious truth. He wanted them to understand and embrace the truth that the Son of God, the Christ, our Savior, was humiliated and suffered. He wanted them to see the beauty, the power, and the glory of God's plan and purpose in Christ's suffering. In describing God's plan for Christ to suffer, he said that God is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. Christ didn't suffer because God is weak, because things are outside of God's control, his plan. No, God is sovereign. He rules over all things. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Christ suffered because that was God's design, because that was God's plan, because that was his purpose. The one who is mighty, the one who is powerful, the one who holds all things in his hand, decided, determined, planned for the Christ to suffer. The Almighty God, for whom and by whom all things exist, saw fit to consecrate and qualify Christ for his service through suffering. Moreover, we have an intimate link with him who suffers. Because Jesus, the one who sanctifies, and his people who are sanctified, have the same origin, meaning we have the same father and belong to the same family. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers, a generic term that includes brothers and sisters in Christ. He suffered for us and is not ashamed to be identified with us, to relate to us, to say that we belong to him. To prove that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, the author quotes from Psalm 22 in Isaiah chapter 8. In Psalm 22, 22, we read, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He quotes Isaiah 8.17 when he writes, I will put my trust in him. And from Isaiah 8.18 when he writes, Behold, I and the children God has given me. The early church understood that the context of these verses, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, contained prophecies about the Messiah with both chapters containing references to his suffering and death. George Guthrie writes, the author of Hebrews uses these two messianic passages, Psalm 22, 2, and Isaiah 8, 17 through 18, for at least three specific ends. One, with their emphasis on the Messiah's brothers and believers' designation as children, these texts support the close family relationship established between the Son and the people of God. Two, both passages refer to the Son's living with God's people. And three, in their broader context, both speak to the son's suffering as well as his posture to trust the father. So all these ideas come together. Christ suffered, the Messiah suffered for us to welcome us into his family. And he is not ashamed of us, but rather he dwells with us loving us, caring for us as his family. 
In verse 9, the author said that it was fitting that God made Jesus perfect through suffering. In verses 14 through 17, he unpacks that further. Because we, the children, have flesh and blood, Jesus partook of the same things, once again affirming that he took on human nature. He took on human nature to destroy the one with the power of death, namely the devil. Brothers and sisters, this is the glory of the cross, what appeared to the world as a humiliating defeat was actually a glorious victory. The cross was a symbol of shame. It was humiliating. It was a horrifying way to die. It was the way that the Roman government would make a spectacle of those who did what they did not want them to do. Shameful, humiliating, excruciating. Yet this was the means that Christ achieved victory for us. This is the way that he crushed the head of the serpent, defeating Satan. If you're not a Christian, our hope and our prayer for you is that you will see the beauty of Christ and his finished work on the cross and how he won victory for his people through his suffering and death. You see, friends, we're all sinners here. All of us are those who have rebelled against God. We've rebelled against his rule and his reign. We've failed to rule this world in the way that he commanded. We're all rebels. We've all committed high treason against the one true and living God. We've all fallen short of his glory. We've all disobeyed his good commands. We're guilty. We are those who deserve judgment. Yet God in his love and his mercy has provided a way for sinners, rebels such as us, to be forgiven of our sins, to receive the gift of eternal life, to live with him for all of eternity in his glorious kingdom where we will rule and reign in the, with him in the world to come. He has done so by providing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the Savior of the world. Jesus came into the world to save dirty, rotten sinners like us. He lived a perfectly sinless life, which we've all failed to do. But as our representative, he lived a perfect life without sin. And he went to the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place. He died and was buried, but on the third day he rose from the grave, conquering death. And he ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And there will be a day when all of his enemies will be made a footstool under his feet. There will be a day of final judgment. But God in his grace and his mercy is providing an opportunity for us now to repent of our sins, to believe in Christ, to be saved so that we might belong to him, his wonderful and glorious family, and so that we might rule and reign with him in the world to come. If you're not a Christian, believe in Christ. Go to Jesus. Be saved. You need your sins to be forgiven, just like we all need our sins to be forgiven. People don't become Christians because they're good people. 
The people who become Christians are those who recognize they're not good people. Christians are those who say, I am not a good person. I need my sins to be forgiven. So if you're not a Christian, we invite you to join us. Join us in acknowledging that you're not a good person, that you're a sinner, that you need your sins to be forgiven. And Christ is the one to do so. He is mighty to save. The comparison to angels comes in again as the author emphasizes that Jesus did not come to help angels. Rather, he took on human nature to help human beings. To help human beings, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That is, to make atonement for our sins, to pay the price for our sins. You see, that's what happened at the cross. Not only the case that Christ died an excruciating death, but on the cross he absorbed God's wrath for our sins in our place so that those who believe in Christ will no longer experience God's wrath, but instead will experience his mercy and his love and his, his grace. This idea of Christ being our high priest is going to be unpacked in the chapters to come, so there's much more to say there. But what we see here in our passage is that Christ was made a merciful and became a high, merciful and faithful high priest in service to God in the fact that he took on that human nature to make atonement for our sins. He experienced life in the flesh. Because of this, chapter 2 ends with a wonderful statement. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So how do we summarize Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18? Here's my best attempt. If you are losing confidence in Christ and the gospel, remember, Christ will rule the world to come, and everything is under his control, even though we presently see evil in the world. His suffering and death led to his exaltation and glory and was the way he made atonement for our sins. As our perfect high priest, he suffered and died to take away all our sins, delivering us from slavery and death, and he will bring us to glory so that we will rule and reign with him in the world to come. As our elder brother, who is not ashamed of us, he knows our temptation and suffering and helps us in our time of need. In Hebrews 1 we read profound statements regarding Christ's deity. He is the one through whom God created the world. He is the heir of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he is the one who is presently sustaining and upholding the universe. Christ is God. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read profound statements regarding Christ's humanity. Christ, who is God, added to himself a human nature. He took on flesh. In taking on flesh, he suffered. Jesus is fully God and fully man. What is the significance of the incarnation for us? Why does it matter? that he took on human nature. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope we find great encouragement and comfort from these verses 
especially regarding what it teaches us about how Christ relates to us. How does he relate to us? Jesus was made low for us. He was humbled for our sake. Scripture talks about this numerous places in numerous ways. It talks about the fact that he took on human flesh, that he became like a servant. He humbled himself, taking on the role of a servant for us. And we see with his disciples one night that he even assumed the role of the lowest servant of a house by getting down on his hands and knees and physically washing the feet of his disciples. He was made low for us. He was made low so that he can raise us up. That is one way that he relates to us. It's the opposite of human nature. Human nature is to puff up, to prove that we are something. We're successful. We're smart. We're strong. We're whatever. Human nature is to puff up to present ourselves as better, stronger. But Christ was willing to be made low for us. Moreover, he suffered for us. He was willing to endure ridicule, rejection, hardship, hunger, temptation, physical pain, a horrendous death and the wrath of God for our sake. He suffered for us. And more so in our passage, we see that he was made low for us and he suffered for us, but he did not do so begrudgingly. He's not ashamed to call us his brother's and sisters. He's not embarrassed by us. He loves us. He cares for us. He is eager to call us his own. He's not ashamed of us, but delights in us. Brothers and sisters, he loves you. He cares for you. He's not embarrassed by you. He's not ashamed of you. He is your elder brother, and he's glad to be your elder brother. We also see that he helps us. How does he relate to us? By helping us. As our elder brother, who is not ashamed of us, but who made himself low for us, who suffered for us, he also helps us. Every single one of us endures suffering. Every single one of us faces temptation. Do you seek his help? Do you seek Christ's help? He is eager to help you. He draws near to you to help. Jesus is the one who was tempted and resisted. He is the one who suffered and endured. He didn't endure all that suffering and resist all that temptation so that he could sit on the sideline and watch you struggle. 
We are not able to resist temptation. We are not able to endure suffering, but he is. And he is eager to help us. Christ is better. He is a better and more powerful helper than anyone or anything else in the world. Do you avail yourself to Christ, the one who took on flesh for our sake? What a glorious Savior. What a glorious Savior we have who humbled himself, lowered himself, suffered for us, to include us in his family, to call us his brothers and sisters in Christ, and to help us on this road, which is challenging, which is hard, but ultimately leads to glory. He is faithful to help us, to bring us to glory, so that even though we have failed to rule and reign in this world in the way that God has commanded, we will rule with him in the world to come for all of eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your work in Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending Christ into the world who took on flesh, who was made low, who suffered for us so that we can be welcomed into your family. We thank you that Christ is not ashamed of us, but he delights in us. He delights to call us his brothers and sisters. We thank you for the help of Christ that he continually gives us. We pray that you'd help us to run to him, to go to him. In those moments of weakness, when we are tempted, when we suffer, help us to remember that Christ is with us to help us. May we not lose confidence, but may we remember our future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.